I think in general, we all know too much about nutrition. I say that as a dietitian, even the most intuitive eating of kids will be a picky eater. We don't need to nutrition them out of that. There isn't a nutrient in broccoli or kale that they can't get from something else, I promise. Hello and welcome to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about why it is okay if your kids think kale is just decoration in the grocery store seafood counter. We also talk about diet culture and fat phobia and parenting and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia. And I also write the newsletter Burnt Toast. So happy 2022. I'm actually recording this in December, so it is not 2022 for me yet, but I know that future me will be speaking to you in the new year. If you are listening to this the day it comes out, we are six days into January, which means you are probably six days into people around you talking a lot about diets. This is like our Super Bowl in the anti-diet world. January is a really, it's also the month of the Super Bowl, I think. I mean, I'm not a football fan, but that's what they tell me. But this is a really hard month for folks who are trying to divest from diet culture and fat phobia because there is so much diet culture noise and so much fat phobia around us right now. And I just want to take a minute to say I'm here with you. I know this is really hard. I'm holding space for how difficult this is. And I hope you can give yourself some grace, give yourself some space, turn off noise whenever you can, whether that's not responding to group text or changing who you're following on social media, not watching morning shows because they're like really bad this time of year. You know, whatever you need to do to turn down that noise so that you can create some anti-diet space in your head and kind of stay focused on the fact You don't want this to be the year you go down a crazy rabbit hole of cutting out sugar or carbohydrates or whatever diet culture is telling us to do right now. You don't need to download a diet app to your phone. You can just keep doing what you know works for you, which is working on rebuilding trust with your body and food. So that is thing number one. It's just a really tough time of year. And I also think it is doubly hard in a way if you're a parent because You're getting all the usual pressure to feed your kids perfectly that comes out as fast and furious. You're getting the added, we just got through the holidays and did everyone eat too much sugar pressure and do we need to reset? No, you don't need to reset. They ate the right amount of sugar. It's all fine. And then we're also getting all the diet culture noise, which is, as we all know, particularly toxic for parents, especially moms. So it is a lot. We are doing a lot right now. Hopefully today's episode is going to help a little bit. I am really excited about this conversation. It is with Amy Severson, who is the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, a new book co-authored with Sumner Brooks. It just comes out this week, so you are just in time to get your copy. Amy is also a registered dietitian outside of Seattle who specializes in eating disorder recovery, healing and preserving food body relationships, and focuses on gender inclusive and LGBTQ affirming care. So in this episode, Amy and I talk a lot about how to feed kids, but I think it is a great lesson even if you aren't a parent, because we also talk a lot about the importance of doing your own work on these issues and what that looks like. So hi, Amy. Thank you for being here. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. Um, For folks who don't know, I've interviewed you a few other times for articles and things, but it is always such a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah. And we are talking about your new book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. So 
Yeah, let's start with the book. This is the book I have been dying to be able to hand to people when they email me, you know, folks I talk to at book events, things like that. This is a resource we desperately need. I think a lot of people are expecting that they're going to pick up this book and be told, step one, to feed your child, step two, to feed your child. And instead, y'all spend the first 150 pages or so, really like half the book, talking about parents and why we as parents need to do our own work and how we can do that work. So why start there? Why is that so important, especially because it is so hard, Amy, you're making us do really hard work. (laughs) I know. I wish I could make it easy and just have it be a complete step-by-step guide, but we would have been missing a lot. It's not an uncommon question because it is like you're writing a book for how to do this thing. Why make so much extra work in there? You know, why do so much extra? I come back a lot to like, I remember when I was a kid, every woman in my family, I don't know why, but every woman in my family had super short hair over the age of like 35 or 40. Everyone just cut their hair short. And I had this assumption that, you know, you, you got old because that was old to me when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> and you cut your hair short. You didn't have long hair when you were old. That's ridiculous, you know? And it was just this assumption that's what you do. And it was the same for dieting for my family too. It was, you reach probably teenagehood and you started dieting. You joined Weight Watchers. You joined whatever diet du jour was the thing, which was a lot when, mm-hmm. um, in the 90s. And you did that. You hated your body and you tried to lose weight. I just assumed that's what you did as an adult. I know that I'm not alone because we see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. The way parents or caregivers talk about not just their body, but food in general. You don't ever, ever have to say anything explicitly to your child. You never have to say, I think your body is wrong, or I think you're eating wrong, or this is your fault. You never have to explicitly say that because if you are saying it to yourself, Mm -hmm. if you are living your life like that, if you're saying it about other people, your kids are tiny sponges who soak up all that and reflected back in the world. Something I hear a lot from parents is my child is three or my child is 13 and I'm now realizing I need to do this and is it too late? They're wishing this was something they fixed about themselves before they became parents. And of course, we cannot go back to our pre-child selves and work on this. So how do you think about that with parents when they're feeling like we've gotten pretty far along here and now we need to do this? I think just like with intuitive eating, it's never too late to step into this. It's never too late to start working on it. I think at a certain point, it is probably more beneficial for your older teenage child to do their own work as opposed to you having different rules around food or different attitudes around food. Our book is more geared toward younger children. Mm -hmm. And it's never too late to start any of it. It can feel so overwhelming to start with. And it can feel like, oh, I have to fix myself. I have to do the first half of the book. Mm -hmm. Master that before I'm allowed to start trying to introduce these concepts to my kid. Because especially when your kid is older, Mm -hmm. it can feel more urgent. Mm -hmm. Like, I need to do this now. I already screwed up so much. I need to fix everything now. As a parent, I get that. And there's a lot of possibility in doing it all together. You, as a parent or as a caregiver, are repairing your own relationship with food while it's continuing to foster that they have a good relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And those two things can happen concurrently. It can be very important that they do, especially if your relationship with food isn't what you want your kid to grow up with. If you get that sinking feeling of like, this is not what I want to see my kid doing in 20 years. 
then doing it concurrently is important. I think that's reassuring too, because it lets us know that we don't have to fix it completely to do better for them. Even if your own relationship with eating is not totally, quote, fixed, or you're still using disordered behaviors in different ways that you can be changing the conversation with them. I hope that people find that liberating. I know I do, because I just think like, okay, I don't have to be getting an A plus on this, um, you know. <laughs> you know, I was trying to get dieting perfect for so long, and now I have to get this perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure to be the perfect parent all the time, yes. and especially in this way. I am so tired of like my kid eats kale, so they're perfect. Yeah. My kid <laughs> knows that kale goes to work with my husband, where he puts in his seafood case at work because it's pretty, but we don't <laughs> eat it. <laughs> um, and that's totally fine because perfect parenting is a myth, I think. Summer and I really emphasize throughout the book how faking it till you make it is totally okay. Mm-hmm. And having a lot of compassion for yourself in that space of not having it all figured out, not being perfect is yeah. fine. Okay, it's January. The new year, new you resolution noise is very, very loud right now. I am deleting so many press releases out of my inbox. It's actually a little bit cathartic, to be honest. But what if we just don't do it? What if instead you resolve not to diet this year? What if you resolve to take up more space, not less? What if you resolve to dismantle diet culture and fat phobia instead of continually reinforcing these toxic concepts by starting a new diet and punishing yourself more? If you are into that, burnt toast is the place for you. And now is the time to join us because it is our new year no diet sale. So for the whole month of January, I'm taking 20% off subscriptions. It gets you down to $4 per month or $40 for the year. You get a ton of perks for that. You get subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, all my reported essays, my full monthly Ask Virginia column, and you become a part of the Burnt Toast community. And this is where I think if you really are thinking about trying to stay diet-free this year, this could be a really helpful place to get support. You get commenting privileges. You also get our super awesome Friday discussion threads where people just really show up for each other as we're all navigating these complicated waters. So go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash new year, no diet to subscribe. So then now let's talk about your three keys concept. So this is what you see as the building blocks of the feeding relationship. And again, I think parents are often wanting to jump ahead. Like, no, just tell me how many snacks is too many snacks or what do I do if they don't eat vegetables? But this is the foundation we have to lay to inform all of those decisions, right? So... The first key is providing unconditional love and support for your child's body. Am I right that this is often one of the hardest parts for folks? Yeah, it definitely is. Partly because I think that it can be hard to recognize that we aren't providing unconditional love and support Mm. for our kids. Because if someone is picking up this book, if someone is listening to this podcast, if someone is looking up any sort of parenting advice online, they're probably trying their damnedest to help their kid as much as possible. It's not malicious. It's none of that. They're trying their best. And hearing the way that we can be harming, for lack of a better word, our kids through setting expectations on their body or even like praising bodies, Mm -hmm. any of that can be 
hard to hear because that sounds bad. You know, it sounds like, oh crap, I'm doing something wrong. But we live in a society that has put conditional love and support on bodies. And we want to change that mm-hmm. because one of the least important things about a person is what their body looks like or even what their body can do. What is an example of when someone may think they're providing that support, but they really aren't? Yeah, I think definitely praise is a big one. Like, you're so pretty, you're so strong, you're so handsome, all these ways that we do that. But it also can be subtle things. We're not necessarily saying that they're bad at something because of their body. The more subtle is something like, maybe they're doing really good in school, but like, oh, your tummy is sticking out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we like make sure that doesn't show at school? Are you sure you really want to wear that? Mm -hmm. Um, You look really pretty, but are you sure you want to wear that? It's a lot of the buts. The Mm -hmm. you're doing really well is saying but, but your body is taking away from it. And those are those unintentional jabs that build up over time. I was just interviewing someone for my book. We were starting to talk about athletics and how often kids get told just way, way, way too young that they don't have the body for a particular sport, even if they love a sport, and how that starts to inform you might love running, but you don't have a quote runner's body or, you know, you're not tall enough to play basketball. Even if you're still putting your kid on the team or encouraging them to love that sport, you're letting them know that they won't be the best at it and so that it's somehow not worthwhile because of their body. Yes, that is really common. Okay, so key number two is implement a flexible and reliable feeding routine. Mm -hmm. This is something that you all articulated so well in the book that was really helpful for me. Often we can either be very structured about meals or have zero structure and both can be really problematic but you said that what kids really need is to know they're going to get enough food the point of structure is to let them know this is a need that will be met that was really eye-opening for me because I was like oh it's not about trying to get the kid to eat on a certain schedule it's about reassuring that they are going to be fed Mm -hmm. so that's not a question but if you want to talk (laughs) more about how you came to that realization and why that is so important for parents to realize I think One of the reasons why it felt so important to talk about enoughness in a kid's life with food is because of the central importance of enoughness in all of nutrition. As a dietitian, I'm I'm claiming that word today. Do it. Because that's probably the most important thing. It's not about what you're eating or the timing of it or anything. It's just enoughness overall. And it is really challenging for us to feel like We're trying to encourage our kids to have that intuitive relationship with food. It can feel really uncomfortable to say no, because that's often how we're told to do it as an adult for ourselves, is if you want something, you eat it, regardless of when you want it, regardless of how you want it. And that's totally fine. Um, Absolutely encourage that. Mm -hmm. And for kids, it doesn't always work, because kids have very one-track brains. They're not quite as prefrontal cortex developed as we are as (laughs) adults and it can be harder for them to recognize like truly recognize that if I don't eat now because I'm hungry I will get enough food later and especially if there has been a time where they are maybe presented with food like at dinner for example that they don't want to eat um it's a lot of food maybe on a plate that they don't enjoy 
they're going to probably leave the table hungry. Mm-hmm. And the same with snacks, the same with lunches, breakfast, all of it. If they're not given enough and given the option to have enough, they develop the sense of, okay, I need to get it when I can. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that they know that, okay, if you don't eat all your lunch, that's fine. And you can have more when you get home. I have an elementary school kid. And elementary school lunches are a whole thing where yes. they only get like 10 minutes to eat food. Yes, um, I'm struggling with this right now as well. Yeah, and my kid is a very slow eater, so I know she never finishes her whole meal. So she comes home hungry. And we've fallen into the routine that she gets another lunch when she comes home from school mm-hmm. because otherwise she's hungry. We want her to know that like, okay, you don't have to feel sad or upset that you didn't finish your lunch. You don't need to feel chaotic when you come home and just go for whatever food is available. You can make yourself some mac and cheese, or we can. She's figured out the microwave, and it's beautiful, so she can do more. (laughs) (laughs) We love that. Yeah, my eight-year-old's got the toaster and the microwave down now. Same. It's beautiful. It's (laughs) a lovely day as a parent when that happens. (laughs) Another thing that comes up in that space is, if we're about to have dinner, if it's 20 minutes to dinner, and she's hungry, I'll say no. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have a snack right now because I want you to eat dinner, Mm -hmm. and it will come, and it's food that you like. And there will at least be one part of it that you will eat. Mm -hmm. So I want you to be hungry for that, and that's fine. It's normal to be hungry leading up to a meal, Mm -hmm. and there will be enough food for you to eat. Yes. My seven-year-old does not understand that whole sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But her brain will conceptualize and understand if we do it again and again. And that's the the goal. Yes, yes. That's helpful. I think you've just articulated this thing that parents so struggle with. There are times when kids want to eat a lot of food, and it's not— in our brains, a time to eat. We think you had lunch at school and now you're coming home starving, but you're compensating for a lack where she's not getting enough time to eat her lunch at school versus, okay, it's 20 minutes to dinner. I'm not creating a lack by saying no at this point. Your enoughness will be achieved very shortly. I'm just helping you understand 20 minutes. Yes, I think that's helpful to think about when you're saying no, are you saying no in a way that's restrictive or supportive? Yeah, that phrase right there, restrictive or supportive, is a conversation Sumner and I had a lot as we wrote this. Mm -hmm. How can we phrase this in a way that is supportive and not restrictive? Because everything else is restrictive. Yes, that's a helpful phrase for us all to keep in our hearts and come back to in those moments when there's a request for food that's catching you off guard in that way. Yeah. Um, I think that's helpful to think about. Yeah. And then the third key is develop and use your intuitive eating voice. So what is my intuitive eating voice, Amy, and how do I hear it? (laughs) This is the exact same thing that parents have and kids have. It's the voice that tells us we are hungry and we want food, that we don't really want to eat this food tonight, but we want to eat that one. It's, I want to move my body today because I feel like I've got energy. It's, I don't have energy and I think I need to take a nap. And we are all born with that voice. All of us are. And sometimes we shut it down. Sometimes we're just raised and in this culture that is not allowing us to foster that, not allowing us to hold on to that and to trust it. And so by developing and using that intuitive eating voice, we get the chance to pull it out of hiding Mm -hmm. and keep it from being lost. And by one, ourselves doing that as a caregiver, as a parent, we show how safe it is, how okay it is to do that. Because we get to be the home-based example forever for these kids. Well, this is what my family did and it was fine. This is what I learned is safe and okay. And we can really allow that space to be held 
for ourselves. And for our kids, it looks like not letting this thing that is really cool and really important fade away and be like locked in a deep, dark corner of our brain. Because it's a really cool space. It's where we get to trust our bodies. (laughs) I'm almost tearing up as you talk about that because it's really such an honor to be able to do that for our kids. It really is a privilege that we can be that space for our kids. So, okay, so you take us through these three keys and then we start to talk about nutrition. And I love how late in the book nutrition comes (laughs) because all too often this is where the conversation starts and stops, right? So why do you think it's so important to shift the focus off nutrition? When is there a place for nutrition in the conversation? 90% of the work that I do is on teaching nutrition to people um, because there's so much. It's contradicting itself or so overblown. And how the heck are you supposed to manage that? Like, how are you supposed to like navigate all of that? And so the last thing any of us, well, Sumner and I want to do is throw on even more rules. Mm -hmm. The rules are not the point. We didn't want to make it the main focus of the book because it's not the main focus of intuitive eating. It's not the main focus of raising kids. Because if you are also shoving vegetables on your kid, um, they're not going to eat it. My kid ate a bite of a carrot last night. That was it. (laughs) That was her vegetable for the day was a single bite of a carrot. And that was fine. I was glad she ate a bite of the carrot Mm because they were good. Because when we have nutrition, we have, did you eat enough vegetables? Did you eat enough fruit, protein, fat, whatever thing is the nutrient du jour, we take away from that intuitive eating voice. We take away from that instinct that it's okay to eat food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's okay to not like things. It's normal to have a picky kid. It's not a screw up on a parent's part. It's not a broken thing within your kid. Even the most intuitive eating of kids will be a picky eater. And that's fine. We don't need to nutrition them out of that. There isn't a nutrient in broccoli or kale that they can't get from something else, I promise. And we can expose our kids to these things, which is the important thing with nutrition, that we can expose them to us as parents normally eating food and taking the pressure off of ourselves and off of them to find it as the most important thing that we could possibly eat on our plate is the Brussels sprout. It's just a piece of food, same as this chicken, same as this French fry. And that allows this like, oh, I don't need to fight with you about this. One, I'm allowed to not like this. And I'm allowed to try it. And that comes up to how many exposures it takes for a kid to be willing to try a food, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be willing to accept a food, which is a lot. It's like 18 to 20 exposures, which is just looking at the food existing. Right, without pressure to eat it. I think so often people hear that exposure number and think that means they have to push it on their kid 18 to 20 times. Nope. They just seem to like be in a room with it. Yeah, it's like sparkling waters, you know, like the essence of it exists in a room with you. <laughs> it's the liquid. It is. <laughs> just waft, check, we got another exposure yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> Hyper focus on nutrition and the anxiety parents have about nutrition so often then gets in the way of the meal being relaxed, fun, maybe you have a conversation you enjoy with your child, like all of that gets lost, right? We're not getting that opportunity for food as connection and food as comfort. Yeah. When it turns into a food fight at the table, when it's like, oh, just eat this food, takes the focus away from the time where we can hang out or just be together. My daughter, she's almost eight and she 
goes in and out of more picky periods, but she's also a kid and her tastes do not line up with that of mine and my husband's. I like really spicy curry. She does not. Mm -hmm. To my great disappointment, she does not like really spicy curry. So if I'm going to make curry, which is a one-pot dish minus the rice, I don't expect her to eat it. Mm -hmm. I don't even really expect to present it to her because she knows what it is and isn't going to touch it. But I know she'll eat some of the dino nuggets I keep in the freezer so she can have that and some white rice and she'll eat one of those things. Yeah. Or the other night we had fish tacos. Again, spicy and fish, two big Mm no-nos. So we made her a quesadilla because we figured she would eat a quesadilla. It did not land that night. (laughs) Don't know why. Could not figure it out, but it was not the ticket. It was not a quesadilla night. (laughs) And she was visibly really sad. She ate a couple bites and was like, I'm full. And we were like... No, you're not. We know you're not full. What's wrong? Yeah. And very quietly, she was like, I just don't like this tonight. And we're like, oh, just go get something else then. You can make yourself a sandwich or have some mac and cheese. Like, eat food, please. She got made herself an easy mac. It was beautiful. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. And it does get easier when they can use the microwave themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not the one having to get up and make the whole second meal. Yeah. That's the tension, right, is all the labor that goes into that. Yeah, we don't need to be short order cooks. No. Not at no. all. In fact, I don't encourage that. The food she can make herself, she can switch out her dinner for. That's the rule. That's a great rule. That's a great way to put it. And we always, I always have some foods that, well... There's a really weird uncrustable shortage right now. Yeah, we're struggling <laughs> so with that in New York are as well. The list. It's it's very sad actually because it makes lunches a lot harder to pack. Oh, <laughs> I hear you. Even before she could use a microwave, we would have uncrustables in the freezer, mm-hmm. and she would just pull those out and eat those, or a bowl of cereal, which is totally fine too. I think folks are going to find this deeply reassuring. I wanted just to talk a little more about the nutrition piece. I liked how you said before that you do a lot of unteaching in your work because I think a big problem is we've absorbed so much of this nutrition knowledge and accumulated it so intensively over the years. Is there a way to incorporate that in a more useful way into your life or is it a matter of just letting a lot of that information go? Yeah, I think there is a little bit of case by case for that because there is some nutrition information out there that is really valuable for some people, given their circumstances in life or what's happening for them. And some of that same information is really not useful for anyone else. Mm -hmm. For example, my partner is diabetic. He needs to count carbs because he needs to dose insulin. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't, it could be bad. I, however, don't need to count carbs. Right. Neither does my kid. The only reason my kid is learning any carb ratios at all is for daddy has low blood sugar, can you please go get him a soda? Mm -hmm. And she did absolutely bring him a Diet Coke one time. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Love the effort. (laughs) (laughs) So we're learning. This one has carbs. We need you to bring this one to daddy. But so many of those little specific nutrition, like tidbits, Mm -hmm. can be really important for one person, but really unimportant for another But we are in such like a black and white society that if this thing is important for one, we can assume it's important for all. Yes. Or if this thing is unhealthy for one person, we assume it's unhealthy for all. Um, But that's not true. We can pick and choose what is important. And for the most part, we also get to pick and choose that forever. I like to use my husband's example. He doesn't drink sugar sodas, for example, because he didn't drink them growing up. And he doesn't think it's worth his insulin. But Fritos and queso, like Fritos scoops and the crappy Fritos queso is Mm -hmm. his jam. And he will eat an entire bag in 30 minutes. That's one of his Christmas presents every year. (laughs) That's worth his insulin because we get to choose that. And 
There are a few exceptions to that, like allergies is one. But for the most part, we get to pick and choose when it's important and when it's not. We don't have to cut anything out ever, unless mm-hmm. it will kill you, then maybe. But for the most part, we don't have to. And we get to choose what is important to us as individual humans. And if we are interested in or willing to to do the work to unpack our own internal diet culture beliefs, internal fat phobia, and the way we externalize that as well, then we really get to pick it apart, which is a lot of work and sometimes not the most fun of work, but it's what leads to having a better relationship with all of this. Mm-hmm. I find most of the work we do around nutrition is unpacking what's not important. That's a really empowering way to frame it, that you get to choose. I think people think they don't get to choose, that nutrition is given to them as the set of cardinal rules they have to follow instead of something you can filter through your own life and your own context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, no food police is going to come for you and like... (laughs) (laughs) They won't come to your house, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't happen. (laughs) I really love that you call the last chapter of the book, What to Do When This Feels Harder Than You Thought. I do not want to give away the ending of the book. Guys, there's so much more in this book than Amy and I have talked about. You need to read the whole thing. But I do think when people are working on divesting their parenting of diet culture and fat phobia, it just feels so hard some days. And you hit these brick walls and you don't know where to go. And then you end up worrying that what you did caused more harm, right? Because you're trying to reduce harm. So what do we do when we hit those brick walls? I think accepting, believing expecting that we will hit a wall at some point. There's always a wall, whether it's exhaustion or just confusion or frustration, because we all have limits. We don't have to be ready for every circumstance that's going to come our way. And we can have a lot of compassion for ourselves in that space. I expect it to be hard. I haven't met a single person that was like, oh my God, that was the easiest thing I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I broke up with diet culture in a weekend, yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, that'd be nice. (laughs) It must be nice to be you. Most people come to me as a clinician and are like, this is so much harder. This is so much harder than I thought it would be. Because yeah, it is. It's challenging. And it is for our kids too. And especially the longer we've been stuck in our own diet culture mindset, the harder it can be to encourage our kids to retrust this space. Mm. It can feel really frustrating and hard, and that's okay. I think self-compassion is probably the most important thing we can hold. Yeah, that makes sense. We have a lot of conversations in our house about, I think candy is one that comes up a lot for a lot of folks, so I'll bring up candy. A lot of, we're not going to have any more candy right now, or we're going to save this candy for later, and you can have more tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Or, no, you don't get to eat more Halloween candy before bed because you just brushed your teeth and I'm tired (laughs) and you're going to bed. (laughs) And you can have more tomorrow. I had a cool moment with my four-year-old recently where we had popcorn and we hadn't had popcorn in the house for a while because my kids are really messy with popcorn. So I stopped buying it for a few months. And then I was like, oh, they love popcorn. I should get popcorn again. And the first day we had it, my four-year-old wanted only popcorn. It was dinner. And she was having a plate of popcorn. And then she wanted another plate of popcorn and another plate of popcorn. And I could see Dan, my husband, getting a little tense. Like, are we going to watch her eat a whole bag of popcorn? Is that okay? And I knew that it was just because it was new and we hadn't had popcorn for a while and she loves it and she was really happy to have it. And I said to her, oh, you know, just so you know, I want you to have as much as you want with dinner. We can also, if you're getting full, save your plate and have this popcorn with breakfast tomorrow. And immediately her posture changed and she was like, oh, 
oh yeah, I'm full and gave me the plate and we put it aside for breakfast and she ate it for breakfast the next morning. And it was clearly that she was just like, I better eat all the popcorn right now because I don't know when I'll have it again. And as soon as I explained, (laughs) it's here in the house now and we'll have it. She was like, oh, okay, got it. And that was very cool to watch happen in real time with her. Yeah. Once you see your kids start to do it, it's really cool. Like we had a similar experience with the chocolate orange, you know, those ones you whack on the table and they break apart. Mm -hmm. That like fun interactive food, apparently (laughs) interactive, is really exciting for my kid right now. We found one at Trader Joe's and she was so excited about it and we bought it and she ate that first one within a few days. And then we went back to Trader Joe's a couple days later and there was another one. So we got it. It's been like a week and a half and it's still sitting in the cupboard. And right, she keeps right. forgetting it exists because it's just not exciting anymore. Right, like, right. It's whacked. It's open. It's like it's there if she wants it, but that yeah. means she doesn't have to want it without frantic wanting. Okay, so we will wrap up with my weekly recommendation segment. This is Better for Your Burnt Toast. This is where we just recommend anything we're really into right now, whether it's something you're listening to, reading, or just something you're doing in your life you're really excited about. So Amy, what do you have for us? We are currently watching, we're late to the game, we are currently watching Succession, and that is what we spend our nights doing. I'm very invested in all these people that I really hate. So if you really <laughs> want to hate watch something. <laughs> if you have not read it yet, the New Yorker profile of Jeremy Strong is a fascinating and hilarious read. Definitely check it out. I will. I will. It turns out he is just as horrible as Kendall Roy is. <laughs> He's not actually acting at all. And it's just a delicious celebrity profile. At times, I even found it a little triggering because I found all the men on Succession a little triggering. And at times, I was like, oh, God, he's like so many like boys I had crushes on in high school who turned out to be (laughs) these theater jerks. That's the whole reason we stopped watching House of Cards after one season. We're like, this is too close to home. We have to stop. (laughs) Exactly. I had the same feeling about it. I was like, this is too depressing. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes I feel that way about Succession, but it is highly entertaining. But I can't stop myself at this point. My recommendation is also something to watch. It is a movie I watched recently. As folks know, I do a monthly movie club with my siblings where my siblings are significantly younger and cooler than me. So we each take turns picking movies and my movie is always a terrible pick and then they all pick these amazing things. This was my brother-in-law's pick actually. It's called The Sound of Metal and it is a really moving film about a musician, like a heavy metal rock star. This is like how uncool I am. I'm like, do you call them rockers? What are, what are heavy metal <laughs> What's the new called? lingo for this? <laughs> anyway, a drummer. He's a drummer in a like heavy metal band. And he loses his hearing really dramatically overnight. He goes completely deaf. You don't know if it's because of the music or because of something else. You never really find out why he loses it. But you watch him coming to terms with being deaf. It's also a really powerful story about addiction. He's in recovery and you see his quest to get his hearing back almost as like a form of relapsing. And it's a beautiful movie. It takes you into the deaf community. It's really thought provoking about addiction, mental health and disability. And it's beautifully shot and acted. So I recommend it. I haven't even heard of that, but it sounds really cool. Apparently yeah, I mean, this is what having siblings 10 years younger than you get to. <laughs> they find very cool things for you to watch. 
So Amy, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great conversation. The book is How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. I will, of course, link to it in the transcript so everyone can check it out and tell folks where they can find more of your work. Yeah, you can find me. My website for my professional work is prospernutritionwellness.com. I'm based in Washington State. You can find me on Instagram at Amy underscore RD, or you can find me on Twitter at Amy Severson. And depending on how active I am on any of those things is the question, but we'll (laughs) we'll find out. (laughs) But I'm around sometimes. That is great. I will link to all of that. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you all so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. This is a great one to share with fellow parents. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.